child getting sick from COVID and ending up in the hospital. What gives me peace of mind is the COVID vaccine. It's safe and effective against serious illness. And now kids five and older can get the vaccine. Please call your pediatrician. Thanks for listening to Greater Boston Today, public service programming on Beasley Media Group stations. If you have ideas for Greater Boston Today or questions about anything you've heard, you can reach me by email, george.knight, K-N-I-G-H-T, at bbgi.com. Enjoy the day. From the town fair time studios, home of the Bruins, Patriots, Rams, and Celtics. Into the corner, follow away three. Boston's home for sports is the Sports Hub, a Beasley Media Group station. Sports Hub headlines. Red Sox have now won six in a row. They beat the Cleveland Guardians uh, again yesterday in Cleveland 4-2. So they have a chance at a second consecutive sweep as they take on the Guardians again today at 140 to wrap up the three-game road trip. Excuse me, wrap up the three-game set in Cleveland. The road trip will uh, continue after that tomorrow in Toronto. As for Deshaun Watson, his hearing reportedly will begin on Tuesday in front of the NFL and the NFL's Players Association jointly appointed uh, disciplinary officer. Uh, Again, the Cleveland Browns quarterback is expected to possibly face suspension. His hearing is set to begin on Tuesday. It's game six of the Stanley Cup final tonight. Colorado has a 3-2 series lead over the Tampa Bay Lightning. They will get underway at 8 o'clock tonight in Tampa. And let's move over to golf where the Travelers Championship has been taking place in Cromwell, Connecticut. Your leaderboard looks like this. Xander Shoffley, 17 under par. Patrick Cantlay is one stroke off the lead. Those two uh, are in the final pairing. They will tee off today in Cromwell, Connecticut at 1.55 p.m. Headlines are brought to you by Core Golf. Have you tried TrackMan Range yet? Stop by and try their new game-changing technology. Gap your clubs, compete for monthly prizes, and practice like a pro from every bay at Core Golf. Open daily, 9 to 8, coregolf.com. That's K-O-H-R, golf. Com. I'm Hardy on Boston's Home for Sports, 98.5 The Sports Hub. More headlines coming up in 30 minutes. This is show. Can you talk about how weird all of this is? Not with the Sports Hub app. Okay, awesome. Download it today and stay connected to everything the Sports Hub has to offer. Oh, my God. Get it where you get your apps or at 98.5thesportshub.com. Well, I tend to think of the Gosling as a poem. The critical opening phrase of this poem will always be the grip, which the hands unite to form a single unit. Slowly and slowly, the club head is led back, pulled into position not by the hands, but by the body, which turns away from the target, shifting weight to the right side without shifting balance. Tempo is everything perfection unattainable as the body coils now to the top of the swing. There's a slight hesitation from nod to the gods. Now the weight begins shifting back to the left, pulled by the powers inside the earth. It's alive, this swing, a living sculpture, and down through contact, always down, striking the ball crisply with character. There was only one other acceptable theory about how to hit a golf ball. Oh, boy. Well, what's the other theory? Grip it and rip it. This is the Hendricks Gen Sports Hub Golf Club, presented by Core Golf on Boston's home for sports, 98.5 The Sports Hub. Now, here's Hardy. 
Good morning. Welcome to the Sports Hub Golf Club. Beautiful, glorious Sunday morning. Hope you're uh, getting out today. It's uh, it's hardy here. Uh, to uh, do a little wrap-up of the U.S. Open, uh, we'll also revisit um, uh, a book and a conversation I had with that book's author. It's called The Open Question. It's uh, it's about Ben Hogan and one of the more enduring controversies in golf about uh, how many Open championships he actually won or how many U.S. Opens, uh, I should say, Ben Hogan actually won because it seems like a pretty cut-and-dried argument. Peter May has written an entire book about it, about um, how many how many majors and how many U.S. Opens Ben Hogan really won it's 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 a good book for golf nerds it's great i think yeah i think you'll enjoy the conversation either way though uh uh, we'll get to uh that here in a little bit but we're going to start off talking about number one the travelers championship which is going on right now in uh, cromwell connecticut and i feel i feel really good for xander shoffley because he didn't get you know it wasn't a bad beat for xander shoffley going back to the u.s open at the country club in brookline a couple of weeks ago i mean um he was playing well. He did. Um, I, I think he did as well as he could play under, under the conditions. But there were, uh, if you go back to one hole in particular, uh, and I believe it was during uh, Friday's round where he was unable to get his ball up the hill um, on one of the par fours off of a tight lie. He was trying to hit a wedge up the hill. The ball. He didn't. He didn't hit the false front of a green. He hit it fat. And on those tight fairways and the tight lies um, at the Country Club in Brookline for the U.S. Open, if he had caught it just a tiny bit fat, then the ball wasn't going anywhere. And that's what happened to him. Not once. Not twice. I believe it was three times before he finally sailed one uh, long enough to where it held the green. And as we saw at the U.S. Open. You know, a, a couple of stroke difference after after one day, and all of a sudden, well, I guess I'm out of it now. I I guess I don't have a chance at winning the the U.S. Open anymore. Is that how that's going to work? And the, yeah, that's 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 kind of that's kind of how it worked. But Xander Shoffley is more than making up for it uh, right now. I just I want to go back real quickly here and double check where he ended up finishing. Yeah, exactly. He was two under par for the U.S. Open uh, in his final round. He finished two over for the tournament, eight strokes off the lead, and it was that swing there in the middle of the of the tournament that I think kind of really turned things for for Xander. Look, you can't you can't blame the, you know, the conditions on that one hole and his inability to, to you know, get the ball on the green there. But I I felt bad for him. He's a good player. He's he he deserves uh, probably a, a a tiny bit more success than he has. Or I, may, maybe to put it another way, I would have expected him to have more success than he's had so far. But uh, leading the Travelers Championship in a really good field. So right, Xander went out on Thursday um, after after the U.S. Open wrapped up in Brookline, goes down to Cromwell, Connecticut, fires a 63 in the first round. Ooh, okay, well, you know, he's seven under par. That's uh, that's fine round, Xander. What'd you do in the second round? Another 63. Back-to-back 63s. And it it's just 
unheard of to come off a, a major championship like that, one where you actually played well at least you know for, for portions of it, and to keep that streak going. These guys are so drained mentally. And so, you know, there's a physical aspect to it, but it's just, it's like the stress these guys put themselves under to win major championships, to go out after that, shoot back-to-back 63s. He shot a 67 yesterday, so he's at 17 under par. Patrick Cantlay has gone 64, 67, 63, and that puts him just one stroke off the lead. Um, looking on the leaderboard, I said, you know, it's a, it's a really strong field. It is. Nick Hardy, we saw his name uh, at the at the U.S. Open, on and off quite a bit over the four days in Brookline, he's at 11 under par. Same goes for Webb Simpson and Michael Tor Bjornson, uh, the amateur uh, from here, the Boston area, uh, also at 11 under par. And I believe he won the pro am, which whatever that means. I mean, you you win the pro am at one of these tournaments, and yeah, it's something. Oh, believe me. If I were in a group that won the Pro-Am, I'd be bragging about it. But uh, I don't think this is something that, you know, these guys uh, hang their hats on, so to speak. But good to see uh, Michael there. Um, I I don't know if it's reasonable to think any of these guys are going to come back to the field today. Any of the guys uh, at the top or near the top of the leaderboard. Uh, they're kind of having their way with this golf course after facing the U.S. Open conditions. So for uh, Torbjornsson to to really make a move today, he's got to make up a six-stroke deficit on a course that I don't think is going to beat up the uh, the, the leaders, Andrew Shoffley or Patrick Cantlay, uh, all that much. So it would require an amazing round from Michael and for those both those guys to fall off a little bit. Um, also, Harris English, last year's, uh, champion. He he fired an opening round 66, uh, and it was 65 in the second round, but uh, 69 on that golf course, one under par, probably not enough, and he knew it yesterday after he shot 69. That wasn't going to be good enough. Scotty Scheffler, number one ranked player in the world, is out there playing well, 68, 67, 65. Ten under par, you would think, would put you in a con- in contention at a at a golf tournament after three rounds. Not really the case uh, there at the Travelers. Uh but awesome that Scheffler is there, along with Tony Finau, Charles Howell the third, Harold Varner the third, uh, another guy who I had kind of you know picked to maybe do something uh, at at the Open. Uh, wasn't the case, but awesome that people are getting to see him in Cromwell this weekend. Brendan Steele, who we've had on this show before, um, nice to see him under par. You know, Brendan has has struggled back and forth a little bit over the years, you know, missing some cuts, uh, not not making it in making it into some tournaments that I would have loved to see him in. Uh, But he's seven under parts, all sub 70 rounds, 68, 66, 69. Uh, And then Rory McIlroy. This is the surprising one. And and I think this is, again, the kind of like the fallout you see after a major championship. These guys are. You know, they put so much into the majors um, that it's kind of like a mental letdown afterward. And, uh, you know, Rory, who had committed to the Travelers very, very early um, and shot a 62 in the opening round. That's awesome. He followed it up with an even par 70. And then he was two over yesterday, which is really, really surprising. Uh, and kind of a shame for the people who went out to watch Rory um, there yesterday and see him go over par. Um, but that's... Uh, the the good news is if you want if you're going to the tournament today 
and you want to see Rory, um, you'll be able to see him early. He's teeing off at uh, 10.45, so you get a chance to see him uh, probably uh, quite a bit earlier than you would have anticipated after he shot that uh, that 62 in the opening round. Tommy Fleetwood's still out there. He's going to be uh, he's going to be playing on the early side today. So uh, a lot of good players out there for the people to see there in Cromwell at the Travelers Championship. All right, uh, back to the U.S. Open. I mentioned this a little bit on Zolak and Bertrand. I I, I want to bring it up again. Um, first of all, c- congratulations, obviously, uh, to Matt Fitzpatrick. It was a you know a fantastic finish, and it was you know pretty much if you didn't have a horse in that race. You know, this is what you want. You want some drama down the stretch. You want to see it come down to the final hole. Uh, you want to see it come down to one of the last couple of groups. You know, if you're just looking at it from a, a sports entertainment standpoint, you don't want it to be a guy who's in the clubhouse, um, four groups ahead of the, the the last pairing, sitting there, sitting on a number, waiting to see if it holds up. You know, I, you, you'd rather it come down to the last two guys on the course, and it did between Will Zalatoris and Matt Fitzpatrick. I believe, and I I believed it as I was watching it, and I believe so now, that as dramatic as that final bunker shot was from Matt Fitzpatrick, when he chose three wood off the tee on 18, on the 72nd hole of the tournament, and found the, uh, the, 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 the bunker on the left right at the bend of the dog leg there, that... That was not that, and, and the shot was fantastic. And for him to to put that shot on the green and to uh, you know save par in the final hole, phenomenal. You know, it it is the the very same shot that we saw. Uh, you know, John Rom kind of mess up, and uh, and he admitted he probably took the wrong club out of there, and you know, just you know the day or two before, so. It, it's not a gimme. You know, that was a very difficult shot, and, and good for him to hit it. And he, he obviously knew what he was doing, not going with driver there. Will Zalatoris hit driver, and it was a phenomenal shot, but missed his birdie putt. Even though I believe, as Dr. Joseph Parent has said on this show, and we've talked about in his book, Make Every Putt, I believe Will Zalatoris made his birdie putt on 18. It just didn't go in. He, he he rolled the putt he wanted to roll. He rolled it with the with the speed that he wanted on the line that he wanted. He made his putt, but not all made putts go in. What's even what's even worse is sometimes a putt will go in that you didn't make. <laughs> you completely stub it, or you it it shoots off on a line you didn't intend. It ends up going in the hole. I mean, you'll take it, but it's not a great feeling. Um, so a great final hole, this, that, and the other. Why did Matt Fitzpatrick have that one-stroke lead going into the final hole? Can you go back to what happened on the 15th hole for a better idea? And I believe you can. Because on the 15th hole, uh, which is a, a par 4 after the long par 5, the 15th hole is kind of this blind tee shot, and uh, Will Zalatoris, as we all know, if you're watching him and you saw the, the commentating going on, he plays a cut. He plays a, a slight a shot that goes slightly to the right. And on this blind tee shot, he thought he had the correct line. He ended up missing the fairway just a little bit. So Will Zalatoris hits a drive that just misses the fairway on 15, ends up in the rough on the right. Okay. 
Matt Fitzpatrick sprays one so far right, I thought may have been in one of the hospitality suites. I mean, this thing was gone bad right. The issue at the U.S. Open, especially, but at a lot of golf courses, is that if you slightly mishit your shot like Will Zalatoris did, you're going to be punished by being in the rough. And at the U.S. Open, the rough is thicker than any rough these guys are going to play all year, except maybe for the British, okay, where it's not it's fescue, it's something different, which, believe me, we know they have that in Brookline, too. If you hit a shot that is so bad, like Matt Fitzpatrick did on that same hole, you actually end up being the benefit of being in an area where the fans are allowed to walk and trample down that grass. So on the 15th hole of the final round, Matt Fitzpatrick hits a poor tee shot, so poor, he's way off essentially the field of play. He's not out of bounds, but he hit the ball into an area where people have been standing for the last six days, and now he's got this great lie and a look in at the green unobstructed, whereas Will Zalatoris, who just barely misses the fairway, is in this thick rough, and he's unable to get the ball onto the green, save par. Meanwhile, Matt Fitzpatrick, after his crap tee shot, says, oh, I guess it's pretty good I hit it this poorly, because now look at the lie that I have. He puts the ball on the green, saves par, goes up by a stroke, and hangs on for the final three holes to win the U.S. Open. It just kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. And look, I'm looking at it under the microscope of that one shot. And there are you know many, many one shots throughout the, the 72 holes that you could look at and say the tournament was either won or lost there. And it's very easy to do it on the final hole after Will Zalatoris missed a putt. I prefer to think of it this way. There are a lot of breaks, good and bad. And the other thing I have to remind myself is that these guys and their caddies are so good they know about this going in. They do. And, and and as unfair as it may seem or seem to me to it seemed to me in the moment that Matt Fitzpatrick knew. It's like, hey man, if you're gonna miss it here, miss it right. I mean, get after it. Miss it way right. Because they know that area over there is actually okay to hit from. I, I'm sure that Will Zalatoris thought, I think the way he reacted after he hit his tee shot, he thought he was in fine shape and he was in the fairway and that he was in the driver's seat there. A bit of bad luck, but, you know, that's that's it. You know, there's there's things happen to you on the golf course that, that you deserve and things you don't deserve. It's what you do with those things and how you treat those breaks that ends up being the difference. And uh, that was the difference, I believe, on that 15th hole for the U.S. Open. And that's what made Matt Fitzpatrick the champion and Will Zalatoris once again ever so close but also giving plenty of indicators that he is going to be back and he's going to be winning a lot of tournaments and and major championships, plural, in the near future. All right, how many many U.S. Opens did Ben Hogan win? That is the question that is uh, put to us in the book, The Open Question, by Peter May. I had a conversation with him a while back. We will revisit that conversation next here on the Sports Hub Golf Club. We're on par with more of the Hendricks Gin Sports Hub Golf Club with Hardy. Presented by Core Golf on 98.5, the Sports Hub.
Joining us now on the Sports Hub Golf Club is Peter May, author of The Open Question, Ben Hogan and Golf's Most Enduring Controversy. Peter, thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. So um, I wanted to go full Larry King on this and uh, <laughs> not, not even crack the spine of the book. Just sit here and ask you all kinds of really uh, ignorant questions about it. But the fact is, I got it two days ago and I already started reading it because it's it's already fantastic. Peter, essentially, this is about a golf tournament that Ben Hogan won that he felt and a lot of people feel should be considered uh, a major championship for him is that a, a decent synopsis yeah or, or even a u.s open championship uh sure. is, is what if that's that's what the you know if, if the hoganistas of the world had their brothers that's what that would be recognized as, as a u.s open and he would now have five which is more than anybody else um so that's what drew me to it i was not aware of it uh until i started researching it it's just something that uh just kind of popped up on Twitter one day and I said, what is, you know, Dan Jenkins was talking about it. And I said, what the, he talking about? And I started doing some research on it. And I found out that a lot of people who were golf fans uh, of my generation and, and even a little younger, if they had never heard of this tournament or knew about this, you know, controversy. And so I said, their response was, well, tell me more. And so that's what kind of led to the book. I said, I'm kind of taking a deep dive into this four days in June in 1942 that really nobody had done that before to the extent that I did. It's been mentioned before, but it hasn't been really, you know, picked apart the way um, I tried to do it. In terms of this tournament, what is with the name? Why didn't they just call it a U.S. Open? They called it the, what is it, the Hale National Championship? What, What was it exactly? It was called the Hale America National Open. Uh, and Hale is not the name of an individual. Hale is the uh, kind of the Hale and Hardy. You know, it was a fitness uh, type program that was started uh, in the government, uh, basically at the behest of a man named uh, John Kelly, who, tr- who uh, turned out was an Olympic rower and the father of actress Grace Kelly. Uh, and he's the one who kind of formulated this hail america hail hardy america exercise you know uh for all the golf clubs around the country or some of the whole tournaments for uh on patriotic weekends like memorial day and the fourth of july and labor day and stuff like that um and this this kind of morphed out of that mindset uh and it took like two weeks from the time the usga canceled the U.S. Open in 42 to them announcing that they had a tournament in place in Chicago for the same time period. Uh, they said at the time that it was not to be considered a U.S. Open, uh, and they have stuck to that uh, mindset for almost 80 years now. All right, so Peter May is the author of The Open Question. Um, spoiler alert, Ben Hogan would go on to win this tournament. Was it set up in terms, <laughs> in terms of, of qualifying and uh, admittance into the tournament like a U.S. Open? I, in other words, what makes Ben Hogan or Dan Jenkins or anyone else think that it should be considered along the same lines as the U.S. Open? Um, yeah, it's, it, originally I don't think that the USGA thought about it in that term when they when they when they scheduled it it was scheduled for war relief uh that that's that money was going to be used for that they didn't they had no idea what kind of field they were going to get so uh that's probably why early on they just said no this isn't going to be a u.s open you know they don't know who's going to show up for one thing uh 
But what happened is that they ran it like a U.S. Open. Um, they, they were, they scheduled both, they scheduled both the local and the regional qualifying, uh, which happens for, has happened for every single U.S. Open, uh, since after World War One, with the exception of last year when it was canceled due to the, um, pandemic. Uh, so they scheduled local qualifying, they scheduled regional qualifying, they, you know, set the rules for the tournament. They uh, examined clubs and ruled the clubs of one participant to be, uh, uh, you know, not uh, the grooves were wrong. So he had to get he had to borrow clubs from the, uh, from the country club to play, and it it it, uh, it had the feel of a U.S. Open all the way through in in that, in that regard. Peter, one of the things that struck me early on in this book about Ben Hogan, when he was introduced as the four-time U.S. Open champion among his accomplishments, he would say five. When they were right. list- when they were listing all of his things, he would always say, nope, you forgot one. Um, right. Did you learn in researching this book anything about Ben Hogan in terms of, I don't want to say pettiness, but a lot of times <laughs> with, with great players, and I think you can include Tiger Woods in this. I think you can include a lot of champions from a lot of sports. He took a lot of these, what would seemingly be a a very insignificant slight. He took them very seriously. And I guess petty is the word. He seemed almost petty about this when it came to recognizing this as an achievement uh, on par with the U.S. Open. No pun intended. Very good. Um, That's I guess that's a way to look at it. You know, he had his, uh, you know, endorsers, you know, Dan Jenkins, you know, most notably among them. But there are are several in the golf writing community that think that he was he was slighted. And uh, a couple of things on that. And he he one of the things that he always talks about or talked about because he's no longer with us. But when he talked about the five U.S. Opens, he always almost always mentioned it in the context of getting five medals. And all five medals were presented to him from or by the president of the USGA. So he would always frame it in that regard. He goes, I don't know how many opens have you won. Well, I got five medals here. It says I won five. <laughs> and, they, and they all look pretty much the same. The, the four official ones are, are all identical. The one from the Hail America is just a little bit different, but it's the same size. And it was actually crafted uh, for the... 1942 U.S. Open by the USGA before they had to cancel it. So that's the, that is the uh, medal that they gave to Hogan. And that's always been his contention that, you know, I've got five medals and, you know, the, the president of the USGA presented, presented each one of them to me every time. So I don't know what that means. And it, it, it could strike you as, as petty. Uh, but it, it strikes me equally as petty on the other end that the USDA has just totally, you know, closed the door on this thing without really examining it for what it was. And the, the things that the USDA cited, main, the main thing that they cited and continue to cite to this day is that the course wasn't, you know, up to USDA standards for US Open. And, you know, my feeling on that is, well, they didn't, you know, it wasn't the, the club's fault because that there was no manpower and there was machinery. I mean, we, they had a war going on. You know, they, they couldn't they couldn't get the stuff in that they needed to do to you know to tighten the fairways or make the greens faster or the fairways narrower or whatever it is they wanted to do. There were no complaints by any of the players from this, about the, the venue in terms of conditions. Uh, and you know, the, the club stepped up. 
to toast it, did the best it could, and everybody played the same course. And so I don't, I don't understand why, you know, not being in, in, you know, quote unquote U.S. Open condition is a reason to like dismiss it because there have been plenty of other U.S. Opens held. And I mentioned this in the book at courses that players, you know, actively, you know, criticized and hated and, you know, thought that they should be, you know, put out to, you know, use for barn and cows and other animals. Sure. You know? Yeah. Well, you still find the best golfer over the course of those rounds, Correct. regardless yes. of what the, what the golf course is. So I think that's I think that's a um, a silly argument to make, too. Uh, Peter. You you also mentioned early on in the book, you know, before Tiger, before Jack, there was there was Ben. Well, there was Arnold Palmer and there was Ben Hogan in terms of, uh, you know, where they rank because we love to do this on sports. Oh, I know. I mean, is does Hogan belong in the same? It seems like an obvious answer. But just to hear you say it, does he belong in the same conversation, the same sentence along with Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods? Um, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that those are your first three people on any of your Mount Rushmore's. Uh, and then you, you know, there's, I think those are the three locks and then you pick who else you want and there's plenty of possibilities. Um, but Hogan, it's just, you know, when you factor in his car accident and how dominant he was after that car accident and how, good he could have been had he not had that car accident right uh he you know and he he really kind of changed the game a little bit he brought you know a lot of changes for you know that the way they have ropes around the galleries now that was you know pretty much because of hogan yeah um but that's you know that doesn't make him any better or worse but he's he played so well uh in a short period of time after that car accident that it just it's mind boggling because he he was very you know severely restricted by um, his his legs were like really you know beaten up by that accident and were never recovered he had to have an uh, surgery that replaced some veins in his of his legs uh, and it, it, he never really gained like complete one hundred percent use of his legs again that he had before the crash and he still went out and won all these tournaments so it, it's he's a, he's yeah he's a legend and he's still a legend to this day as I have found out during this book well, he is enormously popular there are websites all over the place that dedicated to Ben Hogan and Facebook pages and podcasts and all kinds of things oh, that, that that are they're just dedicated to Ben Hogan. I've got a copy of his five fundamentals sitting on the shelf behind me. I mean, it's right. that every golfer at probably one point has picked up or owned. So, right. yeah. And and the, the thing about the accident and how he's able to recover, it really resonates today with what's going on with Tiger. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Tiger's, you know, 10 years older than Hogan was when, when the accident occurred. And, you know, so it's not, in the, it's not like he's in the prime of his career when it happened. Um, although Tiger did have other things going on that robbed him of years in, in his during his prime. So uh that's that's you know, that those were other injuries. Yeah, it's I mean the one thing I wanted to, to make clear if you go I'm not writing a biography here of Ben Hogan, this isn't about, you know, the his swing or his mystique or, you know, the accident. It's about like four days in June in nineteen forty two, uh, that Ben Hogan played, you know, golf as well as anyone you know, has ever played it in anything sponsored by the USGA. And, uh, so that, that, why shouldn't it count? Um, and, 
and I don't have any illusions and neither does anybody else that, that is going to change anybody's mind, but I wanted to get it out there to people who may not even know about this tournament, as I had not known about this tournament when I started doing this book. And I didn't know about it either, which is all the more reason to keep reading, and I'd recommend it to anybody. The Open Question, Ben Hogan and Golf's Most Enduring Controversy. Peter May is the author. Peter, thanks for the time. Hope we can uh, talk again at some point. I'd love that. Thank you very much. More of the Hendricks Gin Sports Hub Golf Club with Hardy. Presented by Core Golf on 98.5, the Sports Hub. All right, I have a... Uh... <clears throat> It's kind of an LIV story without being an LIV story because this has been talked to, to death. Uh, it's a Sports Hub Golf Club here. It's Hardy. Hello. Um, the uh, the Live Tour, the LIV Tour. Obviously, you know we've we've got the the news this past week that Brooks Kepka is going to join. He's going to play with his brother and the yeah okay and it's, uh, the moralizing and the grandstanding and the this that and back and forth and what the PGA Tour has done to answer it. I, I, I'm growing tired of it. There was one commentator who said something along the lines of, you know, this big money thing is taking away from what golf is supposed to be about. And I, I, again, this is just more like, it, it's, it's more soapboxing. I did like the fact that you could always point at golf and say, you know what? It, this isn't the NBA. This isn't major league baseball. Um, this isn't, uh, you know, a sport where you can sign your contract, suck, and still make fu money and still make millions of dollars. You know, golf, you have to go out there and and be good at it in order to make a living doing it. Right? It's not baseball where you can sign a, a ten year, two hundred fifty million dollar contract and then absolutely stink. And still make a quarter of a billion dollars. That's not how golf works. You know, you make the tour and, you know, you lose your game. You know, lose your, lose your not your baseball swing, but your golf swing. All of a sudden, you don't make cuts. You don't make money. You, you essentially lose your job. And as cruel as that might be to guys on the tour, it was always something that I could point to when people say, oh, golf, it's not real. I'm like, oh, it's as real as it gets, man. It's, you know, that's life, right? And the guys going to the LIV, they're not dealing with that anymore. They're getting huge guarantees, and even for finishing last in no-cut tournaments, they're making uh, more money in, in those three rounds, uh, $120,000 for last place, which is well more than most people will make in a year. Okay, all right? That part of it sucks. I don't like that. I don't I don't like it as a as a... Just a thing that you could point to for golf and say it's different from other sports. Now, LIV is trying to change that. I don't want to get into any of that. What I what I do want to share with you is one story about Jason Kokrak, who has been rumored to be one of these guys who's going to go join that tour. And what happened to him in Cromwell on Friday? It was Thursday or Friday? Okay. Uh, this, this was on Friday. Craziest story in golf... Uh, in three days. <laughs> in a year full of crazy stories, Tiger Woods coming back early, Phil Mickelson, you know, gambling away tens upon tens of millions of dollars. Here's the latest. Jason Kokrak. 
um, was playing at Cromwell. He's playing at TPC River Highlands for the Travelers Championship, right? And it, you can tell the story a variety of ways. One of the fu- one of the most fun ways to do it is by using ShotLink. ShotLink. Those are the guys out there on the course. They've got like the the you know super high tech surveyors. They measure every single shot on the hole. So they will help us tell the story of what Jason Kokrak did uh, on Friday at the Travelers Championship. All right, Kokrak tees off on his last hole of the day, which uh, was the ninth hole. He had, he, had, he had teed off on 10 for the day, right? He shot 67 in the first round, but he was four over in the second round. And I already told you what the scores were for this thing. Our leader is, what, 17 under, so he's not playing well. He's probably going to miss the cut, right? <clears throat> According to ShotLink, the guy's measuring all the shots out there on the course. He just tee shot 327 yards on a dogleg right par four into the rough. He has 43 yards to the hole. He then either sculled his shot, he bladed it, or did something. The shot went over the green and across the road. Okay, shot link lists his shot right the last you know the last shot that he hit on Friday. As 87 yards into the unknown. (laughs) They don't know where the ball went, okay? So Jason Kokrak uh, spends some time looking for his ball over in in a parking lot or something. Apparently did not find it because what did he do? Got into his car and left. This is from Nathan Hubbard. This is how he put it. Jason Kokrak appears to have been disqualified for hitting his second shot on his last hole 44 yards over the green into spectators on the road. Then just gotten in his car and driven off to join the LIV tour without even submitting a scorecard. (laughs) And then Nathan said, growing the game, exclamation point. I mean, there are walk-offs, and there are walk-offs. Jason Sobel, who, again, we've had on the show before. He used to be with the ESPN. I think he's with the uh, the Action Network now. He said, uh, Jason Sobel said, I texted Will McGirt, who was playing with Kokrak. He said, they didn't realize the ball went OB. By the time he could figure out where to drop, the group behind was waiting. He didn't want to hold them up and was going to miss the cut anyway. But it wasn't some walk-off from PGA Tour life. Um, okay. <laughs> I guess we'll find out uh, when we see or hear from Jason Kokrak next. Because <laughs> it sure seemed like if you were going to let... What have these guys been saying? I can't wait to get off this effing tour. I can't wait till next week when I don't have to deal with this ever again. <laughs> Skulls his shot over the green on his last hole. Goes to look for it, can't find it. Oh, sweet! Here's my car. Wait, he says to his cat, "Here are the keys in the bag." Good. Let's just go. No going back to the clubhouse. No, no tipping the locker room attendants. Not, not even sub- signing and submitting a scorecard. What if, what if that's it for Jason Kokrak? Right. Who's the, here's a guy he gets mentioned all the time in terms of like oh a dark horse favorite to win a you know to win a major you know a lot of people love to take him as a long shot in these things he's a good player well 
DQ'd, no scorecard, just left. <laughs> All right, well, we'll see if Will McGirt and Jason Sobel are right in that this wasn't a, an epic walk-off from the PGA Tour. If you were going to do it, though, might as well uh, talk about an Irish goodbye. Yep. I'm not saying I'm not saying goodbye to anybody. I'm not even going to hand in a scorecard. I'm out of here. Oh, it's fantastic. All right, uh, a couple more stories from the week, and I look. I am not cutting. You know me, all right. I stink. I'm not going to give you any lessons. I'm not going to give you anything. What I do like to do from time to time is impart to you some wisdom that I pick up in the course of a lesson or I overhear something. And I I got uh, a 10-minute lesson yesterday from uh, the head pro at the Cape Club in Sharon. His name is John Carbo. And uh, I'll tell you about the deal I made with John. And the le- and just one thing from the lesson, no mechanics. I'm not going to tell you anything like that because, believe me, I stink. I'm not going to try and tell you anything, but I'm going to tell you that one thing that John told me yesterday, I think that could help everybody um, who, who stinks at this game like I do. And um, we'll do that as I come back to wrap up the Sports Up Golf Club next. We've got the right club for your swing. This is the Hendrix Gin Sports Hub Golf Club with Hardy presented by Core Golf on 98.5, the Sports Hub. All right, back to wrap things up here on the Sports Hub Golf Club. It's Hardy. Been playing a fair amount recently. Uh, you know, after the Open wrapped up, and I got a chance to play on uh, a little bit on, uh, I don't know, nine holes here and there this week. If I get out for nine, you know, twice in a week, that's a lot of golf for me. So, and, you know, I've been hitting the ball pretty well. I feel like, you know, like the the ball striking for me is as good as it's been in a while, but my scores are not improving because of my crime scene of a short game. So yesterday... Um, with you know the the family there, uh, you know, at the at the at the golf course, and just you know there for a little like a little swim and grab a little lunch, and I'm like, yeah, I'm just gonna go see, uh, I'm gonna go see John just for a second, and I sneak off, and I and I walk into the pro shop and I see John Carbo's the head pro at the Cape Club, and Sharon, I say, uh, hey man, when when you have ten minutes for just a little short game tune up. I love it. He's like, 10 minutes, that's all you need? I'm like, John, here's what I want. I I want you to please be patient. Let me talk for five minutes, and then I'll listen to you for five minutes, and that's it. 10-minute lesson. He's like, okay, I'll hold you to that. Let's go do it right now. I'm like, great. <laughs> so we go out to the short game practice area, and I tell him what's going on, what I just told you. It's like, you know, I'm... I'm hitting the ball okay right now, right? I feel good with the driver. I feel good with this and that. But, you know, short game, crime scene. He's like, yeah, I know. Your short game's a crime scene. I'm like, yeah, thank you, right? I'm like, so my my scores aren't improving because of that. You know, I'm just leaving. I'm leaving so many shots on the course with bad chips and, you know, stuff around the green. And John lets me talk. And I tell him all the stuff that I'm that I'm doing that feels good in my game right now. You know, like a little pre-swing routine and the feels that I have. He's like, okay, it's all very good. And he throws the ball down next to the green. He goes, all right, I want you to, uh, you know, approach this like you went on the course and and hit this, th- th- chip this ball up, you know, to that pin. 
and I go to set up and and chip it, and it's you know predictably terrible. And John says to me, he goes, "You know all that crap that you were talking about that you know feels so good with your pre-shot routine and all that stuff." And I'm like, "Yeah." And he goes, "You didn't do any of that." And I said, "Oh, <laughs> like if you've got." And this this is what John told me. He's like, "Look, your approach for a." A hundred and fifty yard shot out where you stand behind the ball. And if this is what you do or whatever it is that you do, if you take one practice swing, step up to the ball, fire, boom, good, and and that works for you. John said to me yesterday, he's like, You have to take essentially the same approach for a fifteen foot shot. Hundred and fifty yards out, here's what you do. I get behind the ball, I pick a target two feet in front of the ball, I set my club up on line with that target, then I step into the shot, I readjust my left hand once and then I fire. He said, People get around the green and then they start doing all kinds of crazy crap. He said, You need to do the same thing. Same approach. Pick your line. Except now it's even more important to have the exact correct line. Then you step in behind the ball and do all that stuff. Now, this is why I love this so much, because there were no mechanics. There was nothing having to do with grip pressure. or. But the only thing that we talked about was a little bit in terms of, like, ball placement in my stance, which he corrected a little bit. But he was very patient with me, let me babble on for five minutes, and then took five minutes to explain to me, essentially, don't be an idiot. When you, if you're having trouble around the greens, whatever is going right in your game, incorporate as much of that as you can into what's going wrong. Whatever approaches you're taking, if you're hitting the driver well and nothing else, okay, what are you doing with the driver? What, what is it that is a part of not necessarily the swing, but the feels that you have and the routine that you have? Start doing that in other aspects of the game. I think it was brilliant. I stayed out there for like another 20 minutes, practiced. I feel much better about it. Now, it doesn't mean it's not going to be a crime scene next time I go play, but at least I don't think it will be. I've got a, I've, I've got a lot more confidence for the next time I go play. So thank you, John. All right, there we go. Uh, that's it for the Sports Hub Golf Club. Um, be back next week with uh i i believe we're going to get some more instruction from our guys at core golf in natick who the last time i was out there oh my god the facilities at core if you want to talk about working on your short game and that's what you want to do and we, we we had chris hawley on and we you know we got a short game lesson kind of an audio one from chris but just working on your own short game if you already know what you're doing and you just want to practice the short game facility at core golf is second to none. And, you know, we talk about the track band range a lot and how much people like that. Yeah. Don't sleep on the short game area at Core Golf in Natick. Anyway, we'll be back to visit them again hopefully next week and uh, much more here on the Sports Hub Golf Club.